Welcome to the Heavenly Banquet, where the hungry are filled with good things. This week's lesson comes from the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not withhold his own Son, but gave him up for all of us. Will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The central message of the Christian faith is revealed in the resurrection, that Christ, raised from the dead, has abolished death, that humans need no longer fear death, that death is no longer an inevitability, that death has no power, that death can't separate us from God or even from one another, that even though we die, in Christ we live. We live. Somehow, we live. All of the world's religions seek in some way to answer the problem of death, to make some sort of sense of it in a way that comforts our fears and that informs the meaning and purpose of life in the face of the reality of our finitude and death. The Christian answer to the problem of death, the answer of our faith, the answer we proclaim is, unique in humankind, but too often, I think, confused with other faiths, philosophies, and spiritualities all around us. And it's easy to get confused or to lose focus because of the many varied and seemingly competing images of heaven and the afterlife in the Bible. It seems like there are martyrs and saints now with God in glory, forever worshiping at the altar of the Lamb. Others who have died simply sleep, like seeds awaiting the resurrection. Then there's a sort of nothingness of Sheol and an outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then there's the bliss of being cradled in Abraham's bosom and a mansion with many rooms and a banqueting table and a wedding feast. There's a city with walls, but with gates that are always open, and 
There's a lush garden with grapes bursting into goblets of wine and pastures where lions and wolves graze alongside lamb and cattle. Strange places. The timeline is shaky, too. Do we get to hang out in the mansion until the final judgment and resurrection, or is it sleepy time until the trumpet sounds? Or is thinking about things temporally a mistake altogether? Eternity isn't infinite time, after all. It's something that exists outside of time. We experience events in time and history and in an order. Our experience in eternity will be something so wholly other that language no doubt fails to begin to describe it. And yet we try. So much of what we, even as Christians, typically say about death and the afterlife has, if we're honest about it, very little support in Scripture. What we have here is a collection of brief images, some of them competing, that offer us a glimpse of something else, but a glimpse so indiscernible it's like trying to make out a shadow at the bottom of a pool of water. Still, you'll hear people talk about how the deceased has passed on and been reunited with all sorts of loved ones, is enjoying all of his favorite foods, and is engaged in all of his favorite activities— fishing, golfing, playing cards, joining the heavenly choir. Now, I can't say for certain that any of those things are not true, but they sure seem at odds with what we have to admit is actually in the Bible. Whatever happens when we die, it doesn't seem to be life part two. But perhaps because we don't know what else we can say, we say those things and trade cultural expressions as though they were the gospel. Now, my intention in calling you back to what these texts actually say about the afterlife and the resurrection is to remind you that they point to something far beyond and much, much better than those platitudes we share about walking around a heaven that sounds like a country club in the sky. I know there are many of you living into the hope that you'll see spouses, parents, children, siblings, friends, again, in the world to come. I think you will. I believe that you will. There's nothing here that says you won't, and there's plenty of reason to believe that you'll see familiar faces at that heavenly banquet or city where the sun never sets or that garden of paradise. You'll see them again. I believe that. We'll see them. But those special bonds, those relationships will be so far surpassed in that world to come. They will be so perfected beyond our imaginations and our greatest joys that there is no earthly comparison to what that experience will be like. No matter what depth of union, wonder, happiness, bliss, awe you've experienced in companionship with another person— The perfection you'll experience in the world to come so far exceeds that, that we can't dare refer to it as a kinship or friendship or any other relationship that we've ever known. That's the amazing news. Yes, you'll see those people you've loved and lost, but you'll be different. They'll be different. You'll be so perfected by grace that 
What you'll share is nearly unrecognizable compared to what we know here. You'll be able to see God shining so brightly through them, through the love that you have for each other. You'll be able to enjoy and bask in the love of God through each other in such a blissful perfection that, yeah, it makes all of our platitudes about walking around a heaven that sounds like an all-inclusive resort seem pretty silly. There's something so much further beyond that. And there's more. And this is wild, y'all. It's not just with our own loved ones that we'll enjoy that promised bliss. It's with believers of every time and place. We will have that same intimacy of the beatific vision of connecting through God to each other with people who lived in 2nd century Gaul and 16th century Japan, and who knows, maybe even 21st century Mars. Does that sound wild? It is. It's outrageous. It's extraordinary. But that's the sort of fellowship we're promised in the world to come. It's the sort of fellowship that we celebrate at the Lord's table, joined together through faith in God to one another, siblings in Christ that we've never met but whom we will one day see face to face. And in each of those faces, we'll see not strangers and not just new friends, but the very image of the God that created every one of us. God in all and all in God, something beyond our most ambitious imaginings. Now, y'all, this next bit is even wilder, even better. Remember, we're promised as Christians that we'll never be alone. Our very God is named Emmanuel, God with us. We're neither alone in life nor death because we're gods, and we're neither alone in life or death because we're each other's. Think about that for a moment. There's nothing as universal to the human experience as death, and yet there is nothing as solitary, unique and mysterious as our own deaths. We will all die, but no other death will be like mine or like yours. No other death will be like mine or like yours. Death is a singular experience, or so it seems. God promises to be with us in death, through death, and beyond death. That's extraordinary. That's not just a God waiting on the other shore for us. Ours is a God who took on death, who died, who descended into hell, who experienced all of that, who experienced something no other God had ever experienced before, something the philosophers said it was impossible for a God to experience. A God dying? Ridiculous! It negates the very definition of God, but our God figured it out. Our God figured it out. Our God died. Our God died. That's an outrageous claim. Our God died. Our God abolished death by meeting death, by experiencing death, by assuming death into the divinity, by redeeming death thus ensuring that even death, even the process of dying, would be a place where God had gone before and where God would be forever. God is not waiting on some other shore. 
God is with us always, even in death, through death, and beyond death. That's how much God loves us. Isn't that astonishing? Listen, when we say that Christ loved us even to death, we aren't just talking about our redemption or justification, God's cosmic act of removing the condemnation, guilt, and penalty of sin. When we say that Christ loved us even to death, it's something more than that. You know, 2,000 years of theologians have pondered the necessity of the crucifixion because Well, honestly, it seems like God should have been able to save us through less horrific and less baffling means, but our God is a God of love, and our God chose death, faced death, experienced death, abolished death, not out of any necessity. God chose death out of a love for us. God chose death so that we never need fear death or anything as a place where God had not gone before and where God does not remain with us. We will never be alone. God will always be with us, even in death, through death, and beyond death. That's amazing. God promises us life abundant, life everlasting, life eternal, and God promises to be with us, not just in this life, not just in the next, but in all the tween places, whatever they may be. We're never alone. Here we have God and we have one another. In the world to come, we have God and we have one another. And at our death and in our dying, in that place where no one can come with us, in that place where we might otherwise be utterly and horrifically alone, God is with us. For that reason, so that we might never be alone, even in death, our God, this Emmanuel, gave himself to death. Our God chose death, destroyed death by occupying death. Our God chose that, chose that out of such a great love for us. God chose to die so that even the terrifying, unknown spaces between worlds would be filled with God's love and we'd never be alone. Not for a moment, not for an instance. God in our death and in our dying. God ever and always with us. Hold on to that in your grief and your despair. Offer that to others in their grief and their despair. Our God chose to die so that even the terrifying, unknown spaces between worlds would be filled with God's love, and we'd never be alone, not for a moment, not for an instance. God in our death and in our dying, God ever and always with us.